All right, let's continue our discussion of the importance of being earnest. Uh, we left with Jack pretending that his ne'er-do-well brother Ernest was dead, and Algernon, unbeknownst to him, is pretending to be his ne'er-do-well brother. So those two uh, plots are coming into conflict here. We get, um, this is the bottom of page uh, 1755. Uh, remember, Miss Prism doesn't like this idea. It says, after we have all been resigned to his loss, his sudden return seems to me peculiarly distressing. So in come Algernon and and Cecily, um, and uh, he, Algernon says that I intend to lead a better life in the future, that he's been reformed now, uh, though, of course, he was never bad to begin with. And uh, hilariously, at the top of 1756, uh, Cecily says, Uncle Jack, do be nice. There is some good in everyone. Ernest has just been telling me about his poor invalid friend, Mr. Bunbury, whom he goes to visit so often. Now, of course, Bunbury is the imaginary friend that he uses so he can go away and have his fun and not uh, not have to get out of social engagements. Uh, so we get this very tense uh, moment between uh, Jack and Algernon. Um, uh, Cecily says, Uncle Jack, if you don't shake hands with Ernest, I will never forgive you. Never forgive me? Never, never, never. Well, this is the last time I shall ever do it. Shakes hands with Algernon and glares. And the, the preacher of Charlesville says, It's pleasant, is it not, to see so perfect a reconciliation. I think we might leave the two brothers together. Uh, well, of course, that's far from a perfect reconciliation. Uh, but he's, you know, again, maintaining the social forms, as so many people in this play do. And so when they are together, we get the, um, um, the, the discussion between them that uh, Jack tells the uh, Merriman that uh, Mr. Ernest has been suddenly called back to town. And uh, Algernon says, uh, what a fearful liar you are, Jack. I have not been called back to town at all. Yes, you have. I haven't heard anyone call me. Your duty as a gentleman calls you back. My duty as a gentleman has never interfered with my pleasures in the smallest degree. I can quite understand that. Well, Cecily is a darling. You are not to talk, Miss Cardew, like that. I don't like it. Well, I don't like your clothes. You look perfectly ridiculous. Uh, now, again, the, the, all the, the conflicts of value here are hilarious. I mean, uh, Algernon is calling Jack a liar when Algernon is sitting there lying, pretending to be somebody else. Um, and he's... Uh, uh, saying, you know, I don't like you talking about uh, Miss Cecily. He says, well, I don't like your clothes, as if those two things were equivalent subjects to talk about. Um, and Jack says, you have to go. And uh, Algernon, I certainly won't leave you so long as you are in mourning, <laughs> which, of course, he's in mourning for his imaginary brother who doesn't exist. Um, it's, uh, again, the kind of the absurdities just pile up. But Jack leaves, and Cecily comes back out, and uh, she says, you know, it is always painful to part from people whom one has known for a very brief space of time. Uh, again, Wilde is just brilliant at taking these cliches and twisting them around. You know, we usually say it's hard to part from people you've known a long time. No, for her, it's painful to know somebody who you've known for such a short time because you want to spend more time getting to know them. Uh, and then the, the topic of her diary comes up. Um, and another proposal, this is uh, kind of parallel with the proposal we had between Jack and Gwendolyn in the first act of the play, uh, at the bottom of 1758. Um, will you mar You will marry me, won't you? You silly boy. Of course. Why, we have been, been engaged for the last three months. 
For the last three months? Yes, it will be exactly three months on Thursday. But how did we become engaged? Well, ever since dear Uncle Jack first confessed to us that he had a younger brother who was very wicked and bad, you, of course, have formed the chief topic of conversation between myself and Miss Prism. And, of course, a man who is much talked about is always very attractive. One feels there must be something in him, after all. I dare say it was foolish of me, but I fell in love with you, Ernest. Darling, and when was the engagement actually settled? On the 14th of February last. Worn out by your entire ignorance of my existence, I determined to end the matter one way or the other, and after a long struggle with myself, I accepted you under the dear old tree here. The next day I brought out this little ring in your in your name, and this is the little bangle with the uh, true love's knot I promised you always to wear. Did I give you this? It's very pretty, isn't it? Uh, now, think about what's what's happening here. This is all uh, her, her diary. She's just made up this stuff and written it down. She's had this idea of, of Ernest, who she thinks is, is uh, uh, Algernon, and so she invented a romance with him and an engagement with him, and there are even presents. Um, a, a lot of the importance of being earnest is about different kinds of fictions, uh, the, the fictions of social man manners, the uh, fictions of idealized romantic love, uh, all kinds of fictions. And Cecily's diary is one of the, the most obvious examples of this. Um, and she also has letters from him. He says, um, uh, he says, my letters, but my own sweet Cecily, I've never written you any letters. You need hardly remind me of that, Ernest. I remember only too well that I was forced to write your letters for you. I always wrote three times a week, and sometimes oftener. Oh, do let me read them, Cecily. Oh, I couldn't possibly. They would make you far too conceited. Um, so this is, uh, so the three you wrote me after I had broken off the engagement are so beautiful and so badly spelled that even now I can hardly read them without crying a little. Uh, I love that, you know, and so badly spelled. Uh, that's uh, presumably the, the uh, uh, sign of his emotions getting carried away with him. His, his spelling goes to hell. Uh, so beautiful and so badly spelled. Um, and of course, it's in the diary. You know, today I broke off my engagement with Ernest. I feel it is better to do so. The weather still continues charming. But why on earth did you break it off? What had I done? I had done nothing at all, Cecily. I am very much hurt indeed to hear you broke it off, particularly when the weather was so charming. It would hardly have been a really serious engagement if it hadn't been broken off at least once. But I forgave you before the week was out. Uh, so here, all of these kind of, again these these fictional ideas she has. Well, you know, a serious engagement would have been broken off at least once, so it, that that had to happen. Uh, and again, it's all these kind of fictions that they're in their mind, like like Bunbury, like Ernest, uh, the the fictional people that uh, Jack and Algernon create. Well, uh, Cecily has a fictional life, too, that she writes down in her diary, and now it's coming true. This man that she pretended to uh, fall in love with and be engaged with, he's actually there, and she's fallen in love with him and is going to be engaged to him. But we also find out that, again, exactly like Gwendolyn, she says, it has always been a girlish dream of mine to have someone whose name was Ernest. Uh, and so, again, just like... Uh, uh, Jack, Algernon has to find Dr. Chaucible so that he can be christened and have the proper name. Now, after Algernon has gone off to find out a be about being christened, uh, Gwendolyn enters, 
So now we're getting we're getting all of the characters uh, back together in one place, and this starts out the wonderful scenes of conversation between Gwendolyn and Cecily. Uh, when she comes in, this is the bottom of 1760. Cecily Cardew, moving to her and shaking hands. What a very sweet name. Something tells me that we are going to be great friends. I like you already more than I can say. My first impressions of people are never wrong. How how nice of you to like me after we have known each other for such a comparatively short time. Pray sit down. Um, comparatively short. They've known each other ten seconds, you know. Uh, but again, they're uh, they're they're following the uh, the proper forms. They're being polite. Uh, they're you know. There's kind of this uh, absurdity that uh, Wilde is so good at seeing through in the social conventions. Uh, later on, when uh, Gwendolyn says, I am very fond of you, Cecily. I have liked you ever since I met you, which was about half a page ago. Uh, but again, that's the, the way it makes it sound right. And uh, so everything is going on along beautifully. Um, you know, she she wants to, Gwendolyn wants to look at her, and Cecily's okay with that. I am very fond of being looked at. Um, and finds, she finds out that I'm Miss, uh, Mr. Worthing's ward. Well, that's kind of odd, but oh no, it turns out not Ernest Worthing, Jack Worthing. He says, I'm, mar- I'm going to be married to Ernest Worthing, uh, Cecily says on 1762 in the middle. Gwendolyn, quite, quite politely rising. My darling Cecily, I think there must be some slight error. Mr. Ernest Worthing is engaged to me. The announcement will appear in the morning post on Saturday at the latest. Cecily, very politely rising, I am afraid you must be under some misconception. Ernest promised to me exactly ten minutes ago. Shows diary. Examines diary through her lorgnette carefully. It is certainly very curious, for he asked me to be his wife yesterday afternoon at 5.30. If you would care to verify the incident, pray do, produces her own diary. I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read in the train. I am so sorry, dear Cecily, if it is any disappointment to you, but I pray that I have the prior claim. It would dis- Cecily replies, it would distress me more than I can tell you, dear Gwendolyn, if it caused you any mental or physical anguish, but I feel bound to point out that since Ernest proposed to you, he clearly has changed his mind. Okay, now look, several things going on here. First of all, very polite, you know, very politely, quite politely. Uh, they're being exa- they're exaggerating their politeness as this conflict comes up between them. Um, also, it's wonderful that Gwendolyn's diary is the mirror of Cecily's diary, uh, and that very famous line, you know, I always, I never travel without my diary. I want you to always have something sensational to read in the train. I imagine that. Gwendolyn's diary is very much like Cecily's, a, a, a place of fiction more than fact. Um, but uh, then now they're getting, uh, uh, again, the conflict from between them is all kind of subterranean. They're not really arguing. They're being overly polite to each other. And they have to be even more polite to one another when Merriman comes in. It, the, the stage direction says, says that he exercises a restraining influence on them. Um, so they're taking the, their evening tea, uh, and, you know, this is the middle of 1763. Gwendolyn says, with elaborate politeness, uh, Cecily says, I off, can I offer you, may I offer you some tea, Miss Fairfax? Gwendolyn, with ex- elaborate politeness, thank you. 
and then an aside to the audience, detestable girl, but I require tea. Sugar? Superciliously. No, thank you. Sugar is not fashionable anymore. Cecily looks angrily at her, takes up the tongs, and puts four lumps of sugar in the cup. Severely. Cake or bread and butter? In a bored manner. Bread and butter, please. Cake is rarely seen at the best houses nowadays. Cuts a very large slice of cake and puts it on the tray. Hand, hand that to Miss Fairfax. Um, and uh, Gwendolyn, when she sees this, uh, she uh, drinks the tea and makes a grimace. It's too sweet. Puts down the cup and at once reaches out for her hand to, her, to bread and butter, looks at it and finds it is cake, rises in indignation. You have filled my tea with lumps of sugar, and though I asked you dis most distinctly for bread and butter, you have given me cake. I am known for the gentleness of my disposition and the extraordinary sweetness of my nature, but I warn you, Miss Cardew, you may go too far. To save my poor innocent trusting boy from the, the machinations of any other girl, there are no lengths to which I would not go. Gwendolen says, from the moment I saw you, I distrusted you. I felt that you were false and deceitful. I am never deceived in such matters. My first impressions of people are invariably right. Now, of course, this is exactly the mirror image of what she said when they met. Uh, I, I liked you from the moment I saw you. My first impressions of people are never wrong. Now she's saying, oh, I, I distrusted you from the moment I saw you. Uh, my impressions of people are invariably right. Also, she's getting so indignant about, you know, she got cake rather than bread and butter. She got more lumps of sugar in her tea. Um, it, it's those tiny little things that are the, uh, th that's what they fight about. Uh, though Cecily says it's all about, you know, really, uh, of course, about the, the man that they think that they're both engaged to. Um, and then as their, as their conflict, you know, comes to its head here, in comes Jack. And so through even more of the, these kind of comic misunderstandings, uh, Algernon comes in a minute, they realize that neither of them are engaged to Ernest. The one they thought was Ernest was somebody else. Um, as uh, Cecily says, a gross deception has been practiced on both of us. Uh, my poor wounded Cecily, my sweet wrong Gwendolyn. So now, they, you know, when they met, they were best of friends for no reason. Then they were bitterly at each other's throats. Now they're best buddies again. Um, and all of this within the space of, you know, five minutes. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful. And again, a part of this, you get the force of this even more if you see good actors performing this. Uh, it's a uh, really a laugh out loud uh, experience in the theater. And of course, Jack is forced to confess the top of 1765. As he says, it is very painful for me to be forced to speak the truth. Uh, that That's certainly the case. Uh, it is the first time in my life that I have ever been reduced to such a painful position, and I'm really quite inexperienced in doing anything of the kind. However, I will tell you quite frankly that I have no brother, Ernest. I have no brother at all. I have never been a, uh, I never had a brother in my life, and I certainly have not the smallest intention of ever having one in the future. No brother at all? None. Had you never a brother of any kind? Never. Not even of any kind. I'm afraid it is quite clear, Cecily, that neither of us enga is engaged to be to anyone. It is not a very pleasant position for a young girl suddenly to find herself in, is it? Let us go inside into the house. They will hardly venture to come after us there. No, men are so cowardly, aren't they? So they've said, well, they've both been deceived. They're, nobody's engaged to anybody, and so they're just going to go into the house. 
So now we get another confrontation between Jack and Algernon. Look at the bottom of, 16, of 1765. Jack says, As for your conduct towards Miss Cardew, I must say that your taking a sweet, simple, innocent girl like that is quite inexcusable. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that she is my ward. And Algernon replies, I can see no possible defense at all for your deceiving a brilliant, clever, thoroughly experienced young lady like Miss Fairfax, to say nothing of the fact that she is my cousin. Now notice just the, you know, syntactically, the, the, those are exact mirror images of each other. And of course, the situations are mirror images. Jack feels protective about Cecily because he's her ward. Algernon feels uh, uh, protective about Gwendolyn because she's his cousin. Um, both of them are accusing the other of doing something that they have done themselves. Um, it, this this play is full of that kind of mirroring and paralleling. We get the parallel between the, the imaginary brother Ernest and the imaginary friend Bunbury. We get the uh, the parallel between the two engagements, between uh, uh, Gwendolyn and Cecily, each being engaged to a man they think is Ernest, each of them saying that the fact that the name is Ernest is one of the reasons that they love them. Um, again and again, the situations are mirroring each other, and it gives a sense of uh, the fictional nature of all this. This is all kind of highly artfully constructed artifice, uh, and it also helps the kind of the, the comic absurdity of everything. Now, another parallel comes here at the end of Act Two, when Algernon begins to eat all of the muffins. Now, if you remember in Act One, he ate up all the cucumber sandwiches, uh, though he told when he was telling Jack that he shouldn't eat them. Um, and in fact, Algernon says, when I'm in trouble, eating is the only thing that consoles me. Indeed, when I am really in, in really great trouble, as anyone who knows me immediately will tell you, I refuse everything except food and drink. At the present moment, I am eating muffins because I am unhappy. Besides, I am particularly fond of muffins. Um, now, usually, when when you're particularly distressed, you, you, you refuse food and drink, but he refuses everything except food and drink. Again, all of these kind of inversions that... Uh, Wild works into the language here and the, the, takes those cliches and turns them on their heads. And we get another parallel when we find out that both Jack and Algernon have appointments to be christened, to be have their names changed to Ernest uh, by uh, Dr. Chaucible. Um, and uh, Jack says, well, we can't both be christened Ernest. It's absurd. Besides, I have a perfect right to be christened if I like. There's no evidence at all that I have ever been christened by anybody. I should think it extremely probable I never was, and so does Dr. Chaucible. It is entirely different in your case. You have been christened already. Yes, but I have not been christened for years. Yes, but you have been christened. That is the important thing. Quite so. So I know my constitution can stand it. Um, <laughs> the, the kind of the absurdity of these arguments they're getting into. Well, I'm the one who should be... I've never been christened before, so I, I can get christened, but you can't. He says, well, I have been christened, so I know I, I, I can I can take it. Um, arguing about the most trivial things in the most absurd kind of way. But again, all, all they're, they're mirror images of each other. And that's one of the ways that the, the play suggests that our our social roles are just that they're they're roles they're not essential to our identity and that's why everyone looks so similar in this play 
again, there really are no strong individual personalities in this, the way you get in a Jane Austen novel. Um, they're almost interchangeable, and that's part of the point. That's part of the point that Wilde is making about the nature of the, uh, the, the world that these people are living in. Now, Act 3, the final act of the play, happens inside the manor house in the morning room, and we uh, begin with Gwendolyn and Cecily, who are looking out the window at Jack and Algernon, who, you know, just from the end of Act 2. And Gwendolyn says, The fact that they did not follow us at once into the house, as anyone else would have done, seems to me to show that they have some sense of shame left. Cecily says, They have been eating muffins. That looks like repentance. Now, again, what what does this mean? You know, really eating muffins, that means that they're sorry? Uh, how, how does that work? And uh, says, Gwendolyn says, they don't seem to notice it at all. Couldn't you cough? But I haven't got a cough. Again, you know, that's kind of the point. You know, you, you cough to, to draw attention to yourself, but she says, but I, I don't have a cough. How could I do that? Um, as if the you know, behavior had to be uh, completely natural. And when she's asking her specifically for something that would be unnatural. Um, and uh, again, their interpretations of these are, are, are so absurd uh, that they're eating muffins. That looks like repentance. But when they do come in, Gwendolyn uh, does have a, uh, uh, or Cecily does have a, a an important question to ask. This is the top of 1768. Uh, she asks Algernon, "Why did you to pretend? Why did you pretend to be my guardian's brother, in order that I might have an opportunity of meeting you?" That certainly seems a satisfactory explanation, does it not? Yes, dear, if you can believe him. I don't, but that does not affect the wonderful beauty of his answer. All right, now again, a couple of things here. Uh, first of all. Algernon is giving a, you know, this is a very, actually a very honest answer. The reason he pretended to be earnest was because he wanted to meet Cecily. Um, Cecily says she doesn't believe it, but that doesn't matter. It's a beautiful answer, whether it's true or not. Uh, and again, the idea of, of fictions and beauty in this play are very deep in this play as they are in most of Oscar Wilde's works. Uh Gwendolyn agrees as true, in matters of grave importance, style, not sincerity, is the vital thing. Mr. Worthing, what explanation can you offer me for pretending to have, uh, to have a brother? Was it in order that you might have an opportunity of coming up to town to see me as often as possible? Can you doubt it, Miss Fairfax? I have the gravest doubts on the subject, but I intend to crush them this is not the moment for German skepticism. Their explanations appear to be quite satisfactory, especially Mr. Worthing's. That seems to me to have the stamp of truth upon it. I am more than content with, with what, Mr. Moncrief has, what Mr. Moncrief said. His voice alone inspires one with absolute credulity. Uh, so they're accepting these, though uh, kind of knowing that they're not true. Uh, though actually... Cecily thinks that Algernon's answer isn't true, but it is. Notice that Jack's is a lot more ambiguous. Gwendolyn provides the explanation, and, and Jack says, oh, can you doubt that? Uh, so he never really does have to give an explanation for why he had a brother. And it wasn't be just because he could uh, see 
uh, Gwendolyn, it, there, was, uh, there were broader reasons for it. It was, you know, more generally getting away from the country, getting up to town. Um, so his is le actually less truthful than uh, Algernon's answer is. But next, uh, Cecily and Gwendolyn have something they have to tell uh, the, the men, but they can't decide who's going to go first. So they said, could we just, Cecily says, could we not both speak at the same time? An excellent idea. I nearly always speak at the same time as other people. Will you take the time from me? Certainly. Gwendolyn beats time with uplifted finger. And then they speak together. Your Christian names are still an insuperable barrier. That is all. Now that's, again, it's particularly funny when you see this on stage and see two people saying that very convoluted sentence uh, in unison. And then Jack and Algernon speaking together. Our Christian names, is that all? But we are going to be christened this afternoon. Um, and Gwendolyn says, for my sake, you are prepared to do this terrible thing. I am. This terrible thing. Uh, again, Gwendolyn is interpreting all, all of this in a, a very romantic way. Oh, that, you know, this proves that they really feel shame. Oh, you're willing to do this terrible thing for me. Uh, you know, did you come to, did you have pretend to uh, have a brother so that you could come up to town to see me? Um, she's really kind of filling in the blanks in, in a way that uh, fits her romantic mood. And at this moment, as the, the two couples seem reconciled, in comes Lady Bracknell. Um, again, we're, we're the kind of repetition. She, she kind of entered in, in Act 1, now she enters in Act 3, and we've got, we'll eventually get all of the characters on stage together. This is very much like a Shakespearean comedy or tragedy where generally all the characters are present for the final big scene. And Lady Bracknell is having none of this engagement between Gwendolyn and Jack. Uh, she says on page 1769 that she has come here specifically to kind of rescue Gwendolyn, though her father, uh, Lady Bra Lord Bracknell, thinks that she's does, you know, thinks she's at the university extension scheme on the influence uh, for a lecture on the influence uh, of, of permanent income on thought. And she says, I do not propose to undeceive him. Indeed, I have never undeceived him on any question. I would consider it wrong. But, of course, you will clearly understand that all communication between yourself and my daughter must cease immediately from this moment. On this point, as indeed on all points, I am firm. Uh, I love that. On this point, as indeed on all points, I am firm. That's Lady Bracknell in a nutshell. Uh, also, she's not going to undeceive her husband. Again, the, the, the lying and fiction come up repeatedly in this play. They're, in some ways, they're the kind of the social glue of the whole play. And Lady Bracknell is surprised to see Algernon there. She asks if this is where his, his sick friend, Mr. Bunbury, lives. And he says, oh, no, uh, Bunbury doesn't live here. Bunbury is somewhere else at present. In fact, Bunbury is dead. Dead? When did Mr. Bunbury die? His death must have been extremely sudden. No, oh, I killed Bunbury this afternoon. I mean, poor Bunbury died this afternoon. What did he die of? Bunbury? Oh, he was quite exploded. Exploded? Was he the victim of a revolutionary outrage? I was not aware that Mr. Bunbury was interested in social legislation. If so, he is well punished for his morbidity. My dear Aunt Augusta, I mean he was found out. Uh, the doctors found out that Bunbury could not live, and that is what I mean. So Bunbury died. 
seems to have a great confidence in the opinion of his physicians. I am glad, however, that he made up his mind at the, at the last to some definite course of action and acted under proper, proper medical advice. Uh, again, this is all just so wonderfully silly. Um, she say, you know, the doctors told him that he couldn't live, and so he died. And says, hmm, he puts a lot of faith in his doctors, doesn't he? Uh, but at least, you know, he had a definite course of event, and he acted under proper medical advice, you know, to die. Um, so we've got the, the Bunbury out of the way. Now, remember, it was Algernon who said that he would never give up Bunbury, and here he's kind of done it almost on the spur of the moment. And, of course, when Lady Bracknell discovers that uh, uh, Algernon intends to marry Miss Cardew, uh, she has to interview her, again, in another parallel, the way she kind of interviewed Jack when she thought uh, he was going to be engaged to her daughter. And look at the bottom of 1770. Uh, Jack is very irritated at uh, uh, Lady Bracknell passing judgment on, on Cecily. He says... Uh, I have also in my possession, you will be pleased to hear, certificates of Miss Cardew's birth, baptism, whooping cough, registration, vaccination, confirmation, and the measles, both of the German and the English variety. He's kind of making fun because, you know, he didn't have any proof of his own uh, uh, parentage. So she's got all of her papers here. To which Bracknell, Lady Bracknell replies, Ah, a life crowded with incident. I see, though perhaps somewhat too exciting for a young girl, I am not myself in favor of premature experiences. Uh, Gwendolen, the time approaches for our departure. We have not a moment to lose. As a matter of form, Mr. Worthing, uh, I had better ask you if Miss Cardew has any little fortune. Oh, about a hundred and thirty thousand pounds in the funds. That is all. Goodbye, Lady Bracknell. So pleased to have seen you. Lady Bracknell, sitting down again. A moment, Mr. Worthing. A hundred and thirty thousand pounds. And in the funds. Miss Cardew seems to me a most attractive young lady now that I look at her. Few girls of the present day have any really solid qualities, any of the qualities that, uh, that last and improve with time. We live, I regret to say, in an age of surfaces. Now again, that's an exact parallel or mirroring of what Gwendolyn said, that we live in an age of ideals. And here is Lady uh, Bracknell saying we live in an age of surfaces. And of course, it's particularly ironic because the quality that she's admiring in, in Cecily is a very surface, shallow, material one. She's very, very rich. Uh, she's not admiring her for any deep qualities of character that she has. So now Lady Bracknell is all in favor of this marriage. As, as she says in the middle of 1771, Algernon has nothing to, uh, nothing but his debts to depend upon. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's implying it'd be great for him to marry a rich woman like you, and then he could get his debts cleared up. And in fact, Lady Bracknell wants them to get married as soon as possible. Uh, she says, to speak frankly, I am not in favor of long engagements. They give people the opportunity of finding out each other's character before marriage, which I think is never advisable. Now, this is, again, there's a long series of these very uh, funny, very cynical uh, ideas about marriage. And here it is, you know, it's probably better to get married if you don't know anything about the person you're getting married to. Uh, it's, it's not advisable to know their character. You would think, wait, isn't that? Uh, again, Wilde is, is turning all of the kind of conventional ideas on their heads here. But Jack, of course, interrupts and says that she cannot marry without my consent until she comes of age. That consent I absolutely decline to give. 
Upon what grounds, may I ask? Algernon is an extremely, I may almost say, an ostentatiously eligible young man. He has nothing, but he looks everything. What more can one desire? Uh, what a perfect man. He's completely poor. He looks like he has everything, but he actually has nothing. Again, an age of surfaces. Uh, but of course, the reason, the real reason, that uh, uh, Jack won't give the uh, his consent is that Lady Bracknell won't give the consent to his marriage. So again, we have a, a wonderfully uh, mirrored, paralleled situation going on here. So since uh, Cecily can't marry till she comes of age, not surprisingly, Lady Bracknell wants to know what her age is. And she says in the middle of 1772, well, I am really only 18, but I always admit to 20 whenever I go to evening parties. You are perfectly right in making some slight alteration. Indeed, no woman should ever be quite accurate about her age. It looks so calculating. Uh, 18, but admitting to 20 at evening parties. Well, it will not be very long before you are, uh, you are of age and free from the restraints of tutelage, so I don't think your uh, guardian's consent is, after all, a matter of any importance. Pray excuse me, Lady Bracknell, Jack chimes in, for interrupting you again, but it is only fair to tell you that according to the terms of her grandfather's will, Miss Cardew does not come legally of age till she is thirty-five. Now, usually you're, you know, of age at 20, 18 or twenty-one. She won't be of age until she's thirty-five. Um, and that's no problem for Lady Bracknell. That does not seem to me to be a grave objection. Thirty-five is a very attractive age. London society is full of women of the very highest birth who have, of their own free choice, remained thirty-five for years. Lady Dumbleton is an instance in point. To my own knowledge, she has been thirty-five ever since she arrived at the age of forty, which is, was many years ago now. I see no reason why our dear Cecily should not uh, be even still more attractive at the age you mention than she is at present. There will be a large accumulation of property. Um, so, now again... Just this this stuff, again, it's very funny about a woman lying about her age, but it fits into the whole play is about people lying and making up fictions and writing things in their diary and having uh, imaginary sick friends and all of this. That's the kind of world that Wilde has created here. Um, but and Lady Bracknell says, oh, well, she, well, she'll have to wait till she's 35. So what? And so Cecily asks, Algy, could you wait for me till I was 35? Of course I could, Cecily. You know I could. Yes, I felt it instinctively. But I could not wait all that time. I hate waiting even five minutes for anybody. It always makes me rather cross. I am not punctual myself, I know, but I do like punctuality in others. And waiting, even to be married, is quite out of the question. So she says, could you wait for me? And again, romantic, oh, yes, I could. She says, mm, I don't think I could wait for you that long. Uh, you know, what's to be done? Um... And, of course, Jack says, the moment you consent to my marriage with Gwendolen, uh, I will most gladly allow your nephew to form an alliance with my ward. Miss Lady Bracknell says, you must be quite aware that what you propose is out of the question. Says, then a passionate celibacy is all any of us can look forward to. Uh, in that wonderfully oxymoronic phrase, a passionate celibacy. Um so the the plot has arrived at this impasse. There are these two couples who want to get married, who are both blocked because the the, the person who needs to give consent won't give consent. Um, now again, of course, that's all 
a, a, a social fiction. Um, e even in Victorian society, you could get married without your parents' permission. Um, but it, it carries financial uh, uh, repercussions. So yes, they could get married, but it, it would be without the uh, financial means that they would have otherwise. So the plot comes to this impasse, these two parallel couples, and then in comes Dr. Trossable. He says, everything is quite ready for the christenings. And Lady Bracknell, christening, sir? Is that not somewhat premature? Um, he says, uh, but these gentlemen have expressed a desire for immediate baptism. At their age, the idea is grotesque and irreligious. Algernon, I forbid you to be baptized. I will not hear of such excesses. Lord Bracknell would be highly displeased if he learned that that was the way you, in which you wasted your time and money. Uh, she, she makes sound, you know, getting christened sounding like having a drug habit or something. Um, so, but Chaucer's entry uh, causes him to mention the name Miss Prism, and that catches Lady Bracknell's attention. Miss Prism? Did I hear you mention a Miss Prism? Um, yes, Lady Bracknell. I am on my way to join her. Pray allow me to detain you for a moment. This matter may prove to be one of vital importance to Lord Bracknell and myself. Is this Miss Prism a female of repellent aspect, remotely connected with education? And uh, Chaucible says, the top of 1774, uh, she is the most cultivated of ladies and the very picture of respectability. It is obviously the same person. May I ask what uh, position she holds in your household? Um... I am a celibate, madam. Uh, so he, he thinks that she's suggesting there's something sexual between them. Um, and Jack says, Miss Prism, Lady Bracknell, has been for the last three years Miss Cardew's esteemed governess and valued companion. In spite of what I hear of her, I must see her at once. Let her be sent for. So in comes Miss Prism. And Lady Bracknell, when, when she comes in, says, Where is the baby? And there's a general consternation. Uh, the canon starts uh, back in horror. Algernon and Jack pretend to be anxious to shield Cecily and Gwendolyn from hearing the details of a terrible public scandal. So we find out the story that 28 years ago, Miss Prism was the governess for Lord and Lady Bracknell, and she took their, uh, their baby in a perambulator, uh, a male a child, as he says, a baby of the male sex, says, you never returned. A few weeks later, though, the elaborate investigations of the Metropolitan Police, the perambulator was discovered at midnight, standing by itself in a remote corner of Bayswater. It contained the manuscript of a three-volume novel of more than unusually revolting sentimentality. Miss Prism starts in involuntary indignation. But the baby was not there. Everyone looks at Miss Prism. Prism! Where is that baby? Um, well, she says that uh, she made a mistake. She put, she thought that she had her manuscript for her novel in her handbag and the baby in the perambulator, but she mixed them up. Uh, again, these kinds of crisscrosses and mix-ups and parallels. She had this capacious manuscript, is capacious handbag in which I intended to place the manuscript of a work of fiction that I had written during my few unoccupied hours. In a moment of mental abstraction for which I can never forgive myself, I deposited the manuscript in the bassinet and placed the baby in the handbag. Uh, Jack, who had been listening uh, attentively, but where did you deposit the handbag? Uh, do not ask me, Mr. Worthing. 
Miss Prism, this is a matter of no small importance to me. I insist on knowing where you deposited the handbag that contained that infant. I left it in the cloakroom of one of the larger railway stations in London. What railway station? Victoria, the Brighton Line. She sinks into her chair. Uh, now, of course, we remember where that uh, Jack was discovered in a handbag. Uh, and uh, she says, I must uh, retire to my room for a moment. Gwendolyn, wait here for me. If you are not too long, I will wait for you all my life. <laughs> well, if you're not too long, she won't have to wait all of her life. And while they're waiting, Gwendolyn has that wonderful line, The suspense is terrible. I hope it will last. Um, so they, he brings out, he says, Is this the handbag? And uh, Miss Prism says, uh, Yes, it seems to be mine. And she examines it. You know, uh, It is. It has been a great inconvenience being without it all these years. Uh, not, you know, she's still kind of clueless about what this all actually must mean. And Jack thinks it means that Miss Prism is his mother, though, of course, he says, I'm unmarried. I says, unmarried? I do not deny that is a serious blow. But after all, who has the right to cast a stone against one who has suffered? Cannot re uh, repentance wipe out an act of folly? Why should there be one law for men and another for women? Mother, I forgive you. Mr. Worthing, there is some error. That, there is the lady who can tell you who you really are. Lady Bracknell, I hate to seem inquisitive, but would you kindly inform me who I am? I am afraid that the news I have to give you will not altogether please you. You are the son of my poor sister, Miss Mon Mrs. Moncrief, and consequently Algernon's elder brother. So now, as he says, then I have a brother after all. He, he, the the fictional brother that he had turns out, younger brother that he had turns out to be real, and is actually the the. So when Algernon was pretending to be Jack's younger brother, he was pretending something that was actually true, though of course he didn't know it. And when we find out what his name is, uh, it turns out that it's Ernest John, uh, as the, the bottom of seventeen seventy six. Says, I always told you, Gwendolyn, my name was Ernest, didn't I? Well, it is Ernest after all. I mean, it naturally is Ernest. Yes, I remember now. And it says, yes, I remember now that the general was called Ernest. I knew I had some particular reason for disliking the name. Uh, Ernest, my own Ernest. I felt from the first that you could have no other name. Gwendolyn, it is a terrible thing for a man to find out suddenly that all his life he has been speaking nothing but the truth. Can you forgive me? So again, all these fictions and all these lies have turned out to be true. That's you know the the that uh, the kind of weird uh, uh, co coincidence of fiction and truth is one of the the major themes in the play. Um, and Wendell says, "I can, for I feel that you are sure to change. That is, you know, you know, you'll, you'll be lying pretty soon." She's probably right about that. Um, and so my own one, and then Chaucible says to Prism. Letitia, and embraces her. Frederick, at last! Um, Algernon says, Cecily, at last! Jack says, Gwendolyn, at last! Um, again, all of the, the happy couples, everyone is paired up uh, by the end of it. Um, says, my, my nephew, you seem to be displaying signs of triviality. On the contrary, Aunt Augusta, I have now realized for the first time in my life the vital importance of being earnest. Uh, so, of course, that's a pun, you know, both his name and being truthful. And it turns out that he is truthful, but he's only truthful because of this absurd 
uh, machinations of the plot that uh, uh, Wilde has set up. And, and I think it's very, it's thematically very significant that uh, the baby and the uh, trashy novel were mistaken for each other, were, took each other's places. Uh, that Ernest is a work of fiction. He's a trashy work of fiction. Uh, it was easy to uh, to confuse those two things. Uh, that's kind of all he is. Um, but it's those fictions that allow all of the happy endings. Remember that wonderful line that uh, Miss Prism had, the, the good end happily, the bad unhappily. That is what fiction means, uh, as if morality itself were a kind of fiction. Uh, so while gets his happy ending, at the very time that he is subverting the whole idea of a happy ending, of showing how kind of absurd and fictional and contrived it is. Um, and also, again, for all the things you can say about the, the profundity of the ideas in the play, it's also just rip-roaringly funny uh, and very, very witty. Well, that will be it for Oscar Wilde. For next time, I'd like you to read the first part of Heart of Darkness. This is Joseph Conrad's novel, which is um, largely based on his own real-life experiences in the the Congo and the kind of the brutal colonization that happened there. And a couple of things to think about. One is how is who's the narrator? How is this story presented? Who's telling the story to whom, and why? Um, and also. Think about what kind of world is presented in Heart of Darkness. Uh, what are things like? What, what, uh, um, and how does the narrator uh, react to them? How does he feel about the world that he lives in? So we'll talk about that next time. Thank you for your attention. We'll start talking about Heart of Darkness next time.